Welcome to One Shot Church, where our goal is to create a place for you to believe and belong. We're so grateful that you tuned in to check out this message. Feel free to check out OneShotChurch.com for more info or to follow us on any of your social media platforms at One Shot Church. Here's this week's message. Enjoy. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I think that is so easy to brush over a new year and transition, especially everything that has taken place in 2020. Uh, we just want to take some time to enjoy what this year is, to look back at what has happened and look forward to what God has in store for us. So uh, we're excited as a church. Uh, we're just excited as a community of believers, as brothers and sisters coming together just to put our attention on God and to know regardless of how crazy things may be, uh, how, how much uh, we may not have attained of all of the goals that we set out for this year, that God is still good and he still desires for each one of us. He desires to be in relationship with us. So our goal at One Shot Church is anytime we can to encourage you, to encourage ourselves, to be encouraged together, to know that God has a purpose, a plan. He has a place for us to belong and he desires for us to become more and more like him. Um, so today I'm excited. Uh, we're in this series called The Christian Conspiracy. Uh, we're just building out this whole concept of where we want our mindsets to be for this coming new year. And to know that in order for us to have the right mindset, uh, we must unpack some of the wrong mindset, some of these conspiracies, these things that have slipped in. Uh, we want to challenge ourselves. We want to challenge ourselves as a community to unpack what are some of the wrong mindsets so that we can shift into the right mindset. Uh, so this morning, uh, as we prepare to do that, I just want to pray first. I want us to pray. Uh, to set our attention this second Sunday of 2021, which is just weird to say. It's weird to get used to. You remember when you were in school and you'd be writing the date and, you know, you keep writing 2020 for forever. Even writing 2000 is wild, man. I remember we were in school. It was 95, you know what I'm saying? 96. Y'all writing two. That's wild. It's just wild to think of. But to know, man, through all of that, God is good and God is with us. So let's pray. Let's invite him into this time. Let's uh, just be encouraged to set our attention on what it is God has in store for us this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Uh, we love you. Uh, we, we desire to become more like you. So God, we pray this morning that your spirit, who is the perfect teacher, that he would teach each one of us. Lord, I pray uh, it's not just me speaking, Lord, that even you would teach me, continue to teach me as we open your scriptures. Lord, we just pray today, uh, God, that uh, we would set aside distractions uh, we would have our minds be focused not on what's being said, even not on not on anything cool or witty, Lord, but being focused on your word. And as you speak directly to our hearts, cause us to grow, cause us to lean in, cause this year of 2021 to be like no other year. Not because we've attained or we, we've sought after our goals or things we could achieve, but because we became more like Jesus. May this year be the year where we become more like you than ever before. Uh, it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Say it with me one time. Amen. Amen. So uh, today, as I mentioned, we're talking about the Christian conspiracy and and the title of this message. It was something that's been on my mind, on my heart for a while. You know what I'm saying? I think we're moving into the NFL playoffs. Probably as you're watching this, you may not be a football fan, uh, but let's go Miami Dolphins. You know, we may be in the play. We got over 10 wins in the season. I don't this is wild. OK, but I'm a Dolphins fan, just so you know. Uh, and I don't know if you're a sports person, uh, but the 
The title for today is called Bench Warmers, and it's, it, it resides around this one concept, which is this, that sometimes when you play a sport, you have people who are spectators, people who are on the team, but they're not in the game. And I believe that that is the concept for how a lot of us view our Christianity. We view it as a cool jersey we can put on. We view it as like, yeah, I'm a part of the team, but we're not in the game. It's just like this. Maybe you could uh, dress up as a chef. You could wear a chef hat. You could wear an apron. You can, you can adorn yourself to be positioned as a chef. But to realize this, you're a chef by what you produce and what you cook. To know that a chef must produce food for people to eat. It's the same thing, uh, you know, we used to play pickup basketball back in the day and you would have certain people who would have the shoes, you know what I'm saying? They would have the matching short set with the and one, you know what I'm saying? That was back in the day. You know, you have the headband, you have the, the AI elbow sleeve, you have all of the fixings of what a basketball player could look like, but you never actually played. And I believe that this is the challenge. As a Christian, what does it mean not to look the part, not to talk the part, but to be who it is that Jesus has called each one of us to be? So as we unpack the Christian conspiracy, we want to get in some of these mindsets, some of these things that are keeping us from behaving, from, from moving, from acting, from getting into the game of what our Christian faith should actually be. And, and there's so many uh, scriptures, so many things I want to get to, so I won't belabor this intro too much, but there's one question I, I, I wanted us to kind of arrive at, and then we're going to jump right into the scriptures. It's this. It says, how can you be a Christian or a Christ follower and not be like Christ? I think it's so easy for us to, to check a box. Yes, I'm a Christian. Check a box. Of course I go to church when I feel like it. You know what I'm saying? Check a box that, uh, yeah, of course, put me in. Put me in, coach. Put me among the number. But to know this, that to be a Christian is to be like Christ. Such a simple concept. But the, the thought is really this, what does it mean to be like Christ? And today I want us to look at a particular example of Jesus and his encounter, his, his encounters with a number of people so that we might answer that question. What does it mean to be like Christ? Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 35. We're going to read through verse 38. These are going to be our central scriptures, and we're going to build upon these scriptures with a few other thoughts here today. But to know this, what does it mean to be like Christ, to be like Christ? Starting in verse 35, it says this. It says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Amazing portion of scripture uh, where, I, where, where I've been parked and, and what has been on my heart for a few months, just this portion of scripture. And I just love uh, what I desire to unpack here from these four verses is, is Jesus's relationship 
with the crowd, his relationship with the crowd, his interaction with the crowd. As we see this, we, we, we pull up here in verse 36 is the first place we park. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he did what? He had compassion. He had compassion. And, and the, the thought is this, man, when, when you look through Matthew chapter 9, there's so many different people that Jesus encountered in this one portion, this one chapter of Scripture. And of course, when Jesus was walking around back in those days, he wasn't saying, okay, this was a chapter, this was a chapter, that was it. You know, of course, after the Scriptures were written, they then put the chapters in. But to know, in this one segment of Jesus's life, how many people did he encounter just in Matthew chapter 9? We see at first he encounters a paralyzed man and that man and his friends. And Jesus heals that man who was paralyzed. Then we see Jesus encounters the person who wrote this gospel, Matthew, who was a tax collector. And he goes to dinner with the tax collector, Matthew, and his disreputable sinners, all of his friends that were seen as sinners. We see Jesus encounter synagogue leaders. He encounters John the Baptist's disciples. He encounters a woman who has been bleeding chronically and has been sick for ages. He encounters a crowd at a dead girl's house, outside of her house after she dies. He encounters a dead girl and brings her back to life. Then he encounters a man who was mute and who was demon-possessed, and he heals him. And all of these people he encountered, and to realize this, if I saw that many people in a day, in a week, in a month, I'd be like, peace out. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. I don't want to see anybody else. I don't want to hear anyone else's problems. You know what it feels like to wake up some mornings and your phone is just like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do that? And it's just all these texts. But to think about what Jesus encountered in all of these people that had issues and they brought them to him to think about this. And, and in verse 36, what was Jesus's response? He didn't say, I'm going to check out. He didn't say, I'm going to forget them. He didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm through with all of this. I need some time to myself. And we should rest. We should take time to recharge. But in verse 36, Jesus had compassion on the crowd. That's point number one. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion. We need to feel Christ's compassion. That's the goal. And as we think about this, let's jump over to uh, another gospel here in Luke. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse number one. Here's the picture I want us to paint of what Jesus felt when he saw the crowd. Verse 1 says this, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Verse 2, this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, he was even eating with them. He was even eating with them. And I just want us to pull out this real quick that I, I think sometimes Christians, us, myself included, we are the, the most fickle people who are so quick to say, oh, I just need a break from them. They're too sinful. Oh, I need a break from so-and-so. They're pulling down my energy. Oh, I need a break from such and such. You know what I'm saying? They're just, they're just really stressing me out or they're going through this season. And there may be times where God causes us to separate from people. But to know this... That the, 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 the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw who Jesus hung out with, they were questioning, how could he? How could he eat with these people? How could he? And this is the scene that is set up when Jesus begins to tell them this parable. And this is the compassion of our God. Those who we think he should pull back from, 
he leans into the most. And, and, and I think when we're asking, what is Christ like to know this? That it's not us saying, man, I need a break. I need to, I need distance from people. It's us closing the gap. Verse three, it says this. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And I just want us to stop for one second there. Verse 4, it says, won't he leave the 99 others for that one? And to know this, that what Jesus felt, that level of compassion, it was connected to the value that he placed in each individual sheep. And to know that we are those sheep. You, me, us, together, we are those sheep. And Jesus says, won't he leave the 99 for the one? The amazing amount of value that is placed in why Jesus has compassion when he looks at the crowd. How amazing is that? Let's move on to uh, verse 6. It says, when he arrives... He will call together his friends and neighbors. After he's found that one sheep, he's going to call everybody together. He's going to call everyone together. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep, my lost possession that was of so much value. I have found it. In verse 7, as we close here, it says this, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have not strayed away. The question I pose to you is this, is, is our joy connected to the same reason that heaven rejoices? Or are we joyful only when we attain possessions? Are we joyful when we get that raise? Are we joyful when we get that new job, we get that new relationship, when we get the new house, when we get this, when we have that, when we do this? Are we joyful or more joyful over those things? Or do we rejoice with the same reason heaven rejoices? To be Christ-like is to find joy in what Jesus finds joy in. And I think this is the big picture. This is the contrast that I have to face for my own life. Jesus left the 99 because he valued the one. This is the compassion of our God. To say heaven rejoices over one lost sinner more than over the 99 who have no need to repent. There's an extreme amount of value that Jesus places on the crowd that has been separated from God because his whole passion, his whole desire is to reunite that one back to where they actually belong. What an amazing picture of compassion. And that's the first part. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion. Cool? The first C we're going to encounter here today. When we're talking about this, uh, the, the Christian conspiracy is this, that sometimes the, the biggest conspiracy is that you think you are the center of the universe. And we don't realize that Jesus values everybody out of that, out of that 100. He values each one of us so much so that he would leave the 99 to go for that one. The first conspiracy is that thought that compassion is not central to Christ. The conspiracy causes us to focus and, and to shift our focus inward 
When, when, when the whole goal of Jesus is compassion that causes you to open and shift your focus outward and to see value in each individual. Uh, the second thought here, I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verse 36 again. And it says this, it says, when he saw the crowds, as we just discussed, he had compassion on them. We talk about why did he have that compassion? Of course, it was just as we mentioned, he saw the value that they had. But then also, it's the condition. It's the condition of the crowd. And we see the condition here. It says he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep. Oh, isn't that familiar? We just read that. We just read that in Luke 15, the one sheep that strays away. He says they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And, and, and this is it. We see that Jesus, we see that he sees the condition of the crowd. He sees the condition of the crowd. They were confused, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And I want us to paint an accurate picture. To understand this, I've, I've heard multiple people preach this to say, man, uh, sheep with no shepherd, they, they would literally die for a multiple a multiplicity of reasons, right? They would die because they can't defend themselves. Uh, they would die, sometimes they say, because they can't even get bugs out from uh, boring into their ears and doing all types of stuff. They would die because they have no direction to where to even find food and find grass and find shelter. The sheep are completely helpless with no shepherd. And I believe that this is the condition of all man separated from our Father God, separated from Jesus himself. Let's look further at the condition of man. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We saw that Jesus, man, he was moved with compassion first. And secondly, he saw that they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this. This is the condition all of us were in. Me included, you included, no one excluded. Here's the condition. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Me, you, we were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. This is our condition. It says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. The condition of mankind, of womankind, of all of us, the condition is we are dead, we are separated from God, and we refuse to obey God. All of us live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. I love that we, we, we talked about this previously in our other series. We talked about how uh, God had to reestablish his possession of us. Our brother Sonny explained there was a fumble that, that meant we dropped the ball. And we were separated from God because of our sins. But the gospel is what brings us back. It's what's reclaimed the possession of us. But we must first understand for the good news of the gospel, we must understand the bad news of the condition in which we all were in together. It says, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. We were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And, and I want us to jump down to verse 11 in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I just want us to further clarify, to crystallize this picture of the condition of the crowd that Jesus saw. And that all of us, we were in that crowd. Our pursuit here is what is Christ-like behavior? What's the true 
behavior that we are to emulate. Not just the made-up image, not just the things we want to pretend to be like, but if we're truly calling ourselves Christians, there's, there's no conspiracy to it. It's, it's pretty plain. It's made plain. We should see that Christ is calling us to get in the game. You cannot reside on a bench. There's no spectators when it comes to the kingdom of God and the work we're called to do. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're talking about the condition. Verse 11. Verse 11 here. It says this. It says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. We're talking about Gentiles. We're talking about the non-Jewish people, but all of us are placed in that boat. So you and me, we all used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews. That's me. That's you. We were all called uncircumcised heathens who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. So even the Jewish people who were born and, and they were born to be God's chosen people to know that circumcision or an act being done physically to get you back to God, it was not good enough. There is something that needed to be done to the inside of each of us into our hearts because we were born dead and we need to be resuscitated from the heart to be brought back to life. Verse 12, it says, in those days you were living apart from Christ. Separation. Jew, Gentile, everybody, black, white, brown, it don't matter if it never was. Well, never mind. Okay, sorry. It does not matter. We were all separated apart from Christ. It says you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world, and this is an amazing verse that paints a picture of the condition we were in. And a, a huge conspiracy that some people might believe is this, like, man, you know, Jesus added to my life, but I was good before. I was a good person before. I, you know, everything was okay, and Jesus just added to the goodness that was in my life. No, <laughs> you were not good. I was not good. It says this. It says, you lived in this world without God and without hope. Being separated from God, separated and not having connection through Christ, it leaves us without God and it leaves us without hope. Verse 13, it says, but now, here we come, come on, the big old butts, this is what we like. This is the gospel that the condition we were in, there's a but that comes and it says, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near through the blood of Christ to know our condition being dead, separated, and but our God brings us close through the blood of Jesus Christ. What I wanted to paint was just that picture of the condition of man where in back to Matthew chapter 9, we're going to jump back to our base scripture here, Matthew chapter 9, as we saw verse 36, it says they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's who the sheep were, the shepherdless sheep. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were without God. They were without hope. But our God is the one that reunites us. The whole picture we're painting is what did Jesus see when he saw the crowd? First, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them. And then he saw the crowd and he had compassion because he saw their condition. He had an appropriate view of the condition of all mankind. So as we, as me, as you, as we approach our crowd, which is around us, which is wherever your sphere of influence may be, may that be at your job. May that be with your family. May that be in your neighborhood. May that be at your coffee shop. Maybe, I don't, I don't know 
on Corona if you're sitting there. I mean, in the drive-thru, right? Wh whatever it may be to know this, that is the crowd. The question is, how did Jesus engage with that crowd? And to know to be a Christian is to emulate the behavior of Christ and how we encounter the community around us. That is what it means, right? So to know Christ had compassion, Christ had a clear view of the condition of those people, and lastly here today, that there was a calling involved. There was a calling, compassion, a clear view of the condition, and then there was a calling. In verse 37, it says this. It says, he said to his disciples, Oh, I love this verse here. It says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Verse 38, it says, so pray to the Lord who was in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Here is the calling. I wish I had more time. I do not. But this is where I wanted to park here today. The calling this is the biggest area of conspiracy. Because we believe we are not called, we continue to sit on the bench. But I want you to, come on, like right here, look, look me in my face. To understand this, to be a Christian is to be called. There is no Christian who is not called. Do not be fooled to think that just because someone's preaching on a Sunday, they're more called than you might be. Do not be fooled to think because someone was baptized when they were five years old, they're more called than you might be. There is no Christian who is not called. And let's break down, what is this calling? What is this calling that Jesus is pushing towards us? There's, there's so much to unpack in these last few minutes. We're going to hit the gas. We're going to jam the gas pedal down. Let's speed through this and see Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I think this is one of the biggest areas where the conspiracy gets hung up because we begin to paint this clouded picture and it's shrouding us from what the truth that is actually intended of what God wants us to walk in of what he wants us to understand about the calling verse 11 Ephesians 4 11 it says this it says now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church it says the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and the teachers if you grew up churchy like me, this is where they get the fivefold ministry you know you're in fivefold ministry or you're just a person on the bench. I think that this is a horrible way that this scripture was used. This is not the intent. I want us to understand the intent. It says that we do have these gifts that Christ gave to the church. Why did he give these gifts to the church? So that we, we can throw money at their feet because they're preaching good. So, so that we can have them hoop on the organ and, and, and the organ plays behind them so we feel real good. No, it says this. It says their responsibility is to equip who to do the work so that only the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist does the work. No, verse 12 says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build the church. The point of the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the apostle is not so that they do the work. It's to equip us, to equip themselves so that we all might be equipped to do the work together. Verse 12, it says God's people to do his work and build up the church. Verse 13, uh, the church, the body of Christ. Let's not leave that part out. That's what the church is. Nothing else to it. It's the body of Christ. 
No person owns the church. It's the body of Christ. Verse 13 says this. This will continue until we all come to such unity, unity, unity. It's not, it's not just the preacher sitting up in the big chair on the pulpit. It's not, it's not just the preacher who's so distant from the sheep. It's saying this is the unity, the, the, the unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Verse 14 this is the one that's going to sit all of us down in the corner, and I want us to hear this together, me included. It says, verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. Here is the biggest conspiracy about church, is that you don't think you need to mature, is that I don't think I need to mature. The point of the church is that we would mature, and then we will no longer be immature like children. What, what is a child? Why is a child immature? A child is immature because they have no compassion because all they can do is focus on themselves. If I'm hungry, I fall out on the floor until my mom or dad feeds me. Huh? If, if I'm tired, I, I'm going to throw a fit because I don't want to go to sleep because I, I'm going to do all of these things, right? To understand this, that a child is immature because they're focusing on themselves. And then I love when the Bible interprets itself. It says this, it says, we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with their lies so clever that they sound like the truth. What is immature? Immature is when you are not rooted. I love what, what, what Rodney was sharing there. It's about being rooted. When you have shallow roots, you are immature because you cannot withstand the storm or the winds that come. Here is the problem with so many of us who sit in churches like we're sitting on the bench. We think because difficulty comes and we have such shallow roots that God is not calling us to still be effective and to do something that he has placed in front of us. What has God placed in front of us for us to do? I cannot park. We're trying to finish this. Verse 15, it says this. It says, instead, so here's the opposite of immaturity. Here is maturity. Instead, here's the contrast. Here's maturity. It says 15, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Who is the head of his body? The church. Maturity is speaking the truth in love. Maturity is seeing beyond yourself. Maturity is knowing that you must grow. You must grow. You must grow to become more and more like Christ. Verse 16, it says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow. To know this, your growth is not focused on just yourself. Your growth is focused on helping every other part grow. We were just having this conversation. I think uh, Dawn and Ayana, we were talking about this the other time. We were talking about guys who go to the gym. We were saying curls for the girls. You know, you sit in the mirror and you just curl some weights. You get big old biceps and then you got little chicken legs. To know there must be equitable development. 
that your body is still connected for it to function appropriately, each part must develop and grow. The conspiracy is this, that Christians think, man, I just got to, until I grow, I can't do nothing in the church. I can't help nobody else out. I got to grow for myself. But to know verse 16 says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. There's a special work for you to do. There's a special work for me to do, but the work is not for myself. The work helps the other parts of the body to grow. When I do what I'm called to do, it helps you to do what you're called to do. And the whole intent is this, so that the whole body might fit together, be matured, not be immature, be matured and grow to be more and more like Christ. Why can a Christian not sit on the bench? It's because you've been called to do a special work so that you can be matured, so that other believers will be matured, and so that we would look more like Christ, so that the, when the world looks at us, they would see a reflection of him. As I close, because I, I have more slides that I will not get to here today, I want to leave you with this one last verse. And, and to really think about this one, when, when we revisit what we just read so much in Matthew chapter 9, in Matthew chapter 9, when it says this, it says that we would pray to the Lord who was in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. That, that word in the Greek, when it says to send more workers, it says that it was a violent action almost. That this sending is not something just like, hey, you know, would you, would you, please, would you, would you please go out there and work? To know when we pray, we're not asking God to just passively say, hey, if you feel like it today, maybe you could, you know, work, do some work for the Lord. Maybe you should wake up and go to church. Maybe, maybe you should pray to me today if you feel. No, no, no. We're saying when we pray, there's almost something violent to it that we're saying, God, awaken such a passion, such a compassion for this world. Calls them to see the condition of these people. And we pray, God, Send workers out. So what I'm going to leave you with, what I'm leaving myself with in 2021 is what does it mean to not pray in the way I used to pray, but to pray how Jesus is asking me to pray. He says, pray for the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. And he's saying, don't just pray, God, uh, you know what I'm saying, bring in a harvest miraculously, however you will. He says, specifically pray that you would send workers out. Send workers out. That's me. That's you. Pray that you would cause Christians, starting at One Shot Church, starting at churches in Silver Spring, starting at churches across the United States and across this globe, that you would send workers out who would understand there is not a Christianity that's lived on the bench. The game is in the harvest field, and God has a special work for you to do. This last scripture, because I'm, uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm rapping it, and I'll keep rapping. I ain't going to do it to you today. I ain't going to hold you. I ain't going to hold you. Colossians 4, Colossians 4, verse 2, says this. Man, when I saw this scripture, and we're going to have to talk about this again, but when I saw this scripture, I said, God, might this change my life forever? Colossians 4, verse 2, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. 
with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And he says, what are we praying for? I think I spent so much of my time praying and not having compassion in mind. Verse 3, it says, pray for us too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I'm here in change. Paul is telling them this story. He's saying, hey, this is the reality I live in. I'm, I'm in prison right now. But he's saying, pray for me that God would give me an opportunity to share his gospel. One version puts it like this. It says, pray for an open door for the word of God to go forward. There are people in our lives who have no knowledge of God. The, the place where I work, I, you know, my, my boss is like, I'm an agnostic. Uh, there are people who are Muslims. There are people who have different faith backgrounds. I don't know what it takes to convince them of who our God is. But God is saying this, pray, pray that there would be an opportunity for the word to go forward. Verse 4 it says this, pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Verse 5, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. God, should I join the HOA board in my neighborhood so that I would actually know somebody who lives around me? So that, God, you would allow me to make the most of every opportunity to pray for open doors for God to allow the gospel to go forward. And verse 5, to live wisely among non-believers. Sometimes it's not what we say. It is how we live. And sometimes it's not just how we live. It's that God will open the door for us to say something. In verse 6, it says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. The right response. So my challenge to you, to me, as we think about uh, Christian conspiracies, things that hinder us, things that keep us from doing what God has called us to do, is that God wants to change how we pray in 2021. And my prayer is this, that there are things in your heart that you desire. That might be for a husband. It might be for a wife. It might be for a new job. It might be for a car. And I'm saying, it's okay. God knows these things. You should pray for them. That's fine. But to know this as well, God is trying to change how you pray because to be like Christ is to have compassion, is to have an appropriate view of the condition of this world. And it's to hear the calling, which is to pray for God to send out workers into the harvest field so that those who are lost, that one sheep who is far away from God would be brought near. So I'm going to pray as we close, but I had this one quote that uh, came up in some studies. I'm not going to read it all. I've, I've overdone my stay here today on this Sunday. I've overdone it. But it says this. It says, first of all, we should pray for individuals. It says, under God's guidance, we should select individuals upon whom we should center our prayers. Every minister and every Christian should have a prayer list. So here's a suggestion of something that we could do. It says we should have a prayer list. We should write at the top of a sheet of paper, God helping me, I will pray earnestly and work persistently for the conversion of the following persons. It says, then 
should kneel before God and ask God definitely and in the most thoughtful earnestness and sincerity to whom you should put on that prayer list. The, the thought was this, and this is from something that's called a place of prayer and evangelism. It says this, should we actually make a prayer list that is focused externally and we're asking God earnestly, who is it that I desire to see you convert? Growing up in church, it's so easy. The conspiracy is this. All of my friends are Christians. Everybody I know is Christian. I don't talk to anybody that's not a Christian. I only listen to Christian music. I only read Christian books. I'm not going to watch anything. That nothing shall defile my eyes. Amen, brother and sister. But to know this, there is a world outside of us. There is a harvest field outside of us. There are sheep that have not yet been brought into the pasture. And this quote, and what I reminded you from Colossians, from so many places here today, is who is God calling you to pray for first? Not that you got to preach a message to him. Not that you got to do anything to, to make them feel awkward. You don't got to wrap up a Bible and give them a late Christmas present. You, got, you ain't got to do nothing. You don't got to sprinkle oil in their car. God is saying, who are you going to put on your prayer list? Above everything that you're asking for, the challenge for 2021 is who is God calling me to pray that these people would be converted, that they would come to the knowledge of the most saving faith, the only thing to rescue us from the condition we were all born in, separated, without God, without hope. The only thing to save mankind is Jesus dying and the belief being placed on him as our sacrifice. Who can I pray for this year? And to know this, that the field that we're called into, violently called into, that either it's true or it's not. Let's put God to the test. Not that we would attain more and get more this year, but that we would see him transform the people that we thought would never be reached because we do what God has asked us to do, which is pray for their souls. So much I could say, let's pray right now before I wrap you up some more. I'm not going to do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for your wisdom. God, I ask for myself, for my brothers and sisters who are watching this whenever they do, might you right even at this moment begin to place on our hearts who it is we should pray for this year. The people we love the people we might know, the people who we know are far from you and we're questioning whether they would be saved if you were to come back or if they were to die. God, I pray, move us towards compassion. Give us a clear sight of their condition and help us to know we are the ones that are called. God, give us those names. And God, I pray as well, as you said in Matthew chapter 9, that you would send out workers. God, I pray right now that One Shot Church would be a place filled with workers, not spectators, not those so focused on our own shortcomings that we forget the world around us, that we would be a church filled with workers. 
So God, send workers into your harvest field. Cause there to be such compassion and passion on the inside of us for your good news that we cannot contain it. And might 2021 be a year like never before. In your matchless name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'm supposed to say goodbye. I was like caught up in something. Forgive me. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for tuning in with us. We cannot wait to continue this year with you. Thank you so much for rocking with our church. And the hope is this, that more than that, God would transform our lives this year so that we would see what it is that he sees. God bless you guys. Have a good week. Peace.